All right, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for, um, for you, um, for you, the second person of the Trinity, sent by the Father, um, and then also for the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are three in one and that um, you have delighted to bring us into relationship with you. And so we ask now, even as we look into these mysteries, would you give us grace um, to encounter you in all of your glory um, as you are revealed in Holy Scripture, as you've been revealed to human beings throughout human history. Um, And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, so this is the first of six weeks uh, six weeks of class that I'll be doing on the Holy Spirit. And um, they're standalone classes, but they will kind of build off of each other. And I thought, well, why not begin at the beginning in a sense? Let's talk about the bigger picture. Um, let's talk about an easy topic. Why don't we just tackle the Trinity, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking of um, why did I want to do six uh, classes on the Holy Spirit? And it came to me because over time I've felt like there are a lot of misconceptions about who the Holy Spirit is. Um, Very often I I feel like this is, I I run into it in different avenues, in the church and outside the church. Um, There's a song that gets sung in some circles of the church that goes like this. There's a, I won't sing it for you, I'll say it, but uh, you'll be glad for that. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. Have you heard that song? And I know that God is here, basically. But with that song, I always want to say, okay, a sweet, sweet spirit, but what spirit are we talking about? Who are we talking about? Um, Because the Holy Spirit, as revealed in Holy Scripture, um, is so much more than what some people want to attribute to him. Um, The Holy Spirit is not, we're going to talk about a couple things that the Holy Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit is not a vague sense of well-being or a vague sense of togetherness. We all did that together. The Spirit was among us. There was a unified Spirit among us. That must be the Holy Spirit, right? Not to say it It can't be the Holy Spirit, but um, in general, is that the Holy Spirit? Or a vague sense of good cheer, right? We are all in good spirits, and we use that phrase. And then we often will use that phrase in the church to think, well, that must be what the Holy Spirit is, if we're all in good cheer together. There is um, some sense in which there are these emotions and spiritual and virtual qu- virtue, virtuous qualities that are attributes of the Holy Spirit that do signify that the Holy Spirit is present in individual Christian believers and in the body of Christ as we meet together. And um, Galatians, in Galatians, Paul talks about some of those attributes the fruit of the Holy Spirit, signs that the Holy Spirit is present. Um, The Holy Spirit is present wherever in Christian believers there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you can see with all of those attributes, those are far richer, far deeper um, than simply a good feeling, aren't they? Um, They have a lot more depth to them, and um, they come from a very different place. They come from the place of being in Christ, rooted and grounded in God's redeeming work for us in Jesus Christ. Um, So it's much more concrete than this vague sense of well-being. Um, That's why I I get kind of itchy when people uh, start squirming, when people say things like that, because I think, oh, the Holy Spirit, he's so much more than just this awesome, great, we did this together, or great, we feel really good, or great, um, we're all really happy. 
Um, so that's what the Holy Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit is also not, and this is more something I find outside of the church, the Holy Spirit, but it can seep into the way we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not mean that we are somehow plugging in, tapping into the spirit of the universe of which we're all a part. Um, the Holy Spirit is not this vague, impersonal, universal spirit that every single human being has a little spark of and that when we get close to other sparks then there's a fire and we're sort of tapped into this cosmic spirit that's sort of vague and out there. The Holy Spirit is so much more than that. That's actually a pagan idea um, and not a Christian idea because the Christian idea of the Holy Spirit has a very much more specific idea of who he is, where he comes from, what he does, why he does what he does, and how he manifests himself in our lives as individual believers and our life as the corporate body of Christ. Okay, so that's another thing that the Holy Spirit is not. My third um, diatribe is <laughs> the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal it. Have you ever heard someone call the Holy Spirit it? I always get afraid. I get, I get nervous when people say it about the Holy Spirit because then it sounds like we're talking about the spirit of the age that we can tap into like all good pagans and plug into if we just rediscover that divine spark within us. That's not, that's not the Christian um, witness of who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person, in fact, and the Holy Spirit is indeed the third person of the Trinity. There are three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And A.W. Tozer wrote a great, there's this great quote that he has about who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal it, but a person, in fact, the third person, of the Trinity. He writes, spell this out in capital letters. The, and then he goes on to do so in capital letters. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not enthusiasm. He is not courage. He is not energy. He is not the personification of all good qualities like Jack Frost is the personification of cold, cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not the personification of anything. He has individuality. He is one being and not another. He has will and intelligence. He has hearing. He has knowledge and sympathy and ability to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice. He is a person. What do you think about that? How does that strike you? Is that something strange to hear or something that you think, wow, oh, I didn't know that. Strange. Is it strange? Tell me why it's strange. Yes. Yeah. He's a person. Uh, one of the separate three persons within the Godhead. And I think because we don't talk about him as much as we talk about the Father and the Son, and we'll talk about why that is. Why don't we talk about the Holy Spirit as much? Um, well, one of the things about that, and I like to use this analogy, is that the Holy Spirit does not want to be on center stage. Whenever the Holy Spirit is placed on center stage throughout salvation history, what you see him doing is saying, no, glorify Jesus. No, look to the Father. Everything that the Holy Spirit does is to showcase um, God the Father and God the Son. 
um, to say in Jesus Christ is our redemption. So he really, even when he's present very palpably, he's giving glory and honor to the Son and the Father. He's like he's shy. He'd so much rather be on the other side of the spotlight than on stage. What else? What else makes that strange? I've always had a hard time understanding, or I I feel like I've been taught over the years that the the, the Holy Trinity is all one. Yes. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Yes. That's that's a hard concept for me to get my arms around. If he's a separate person, how is he? I know, and the and the history of the doctrine around that. If you read anything, if you read any theology about that, what I would say is read the early theology, and not the later theology. One of the things about the early theology of the church fathers is that they focus primarily on Father and Son rather than on the Holy Spirit. For some reason, that was not as hard of a difficulty for them to wrap their minds around as the incarnation of the Son. How could the Son be both fully God and fully human at the same time? And that was something that made their Greek minds with this understanding um, in those early years, they had this understanding that the spirit or the soul of someone was distinct and separate from their body to the extent that it was eternal, and we believe this too, but that it was something else coming in it. So um, basically what they, they had to parse things out a little bit more clearly because some of them wanted to say, well, only Jesus' <coughs> flesh was human, his mind, his soul, because they put mind, emotions, soul, all in one, was divine. Um, but we see Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus, taking on um, very clear human emotions, um, taking on very clear human qualities and ways of thinking, even while he also had supernatural and divine qualities and ways of thinking. But I agree, that is the hardest part, three and one, and that is where the mystery comes into play. So we can talk about it in one way. The Latin and Western way of looking at the Trinity was to say, and this was started off by Tertullian, that they are um, three separate beings that all have the same property of divinity, almost like in, um, in real life you can own a property and you can have multiple owners of a property. You, you all have shares in this property. Um, but one of the problems with that analogy is that then is the property, the value of the property diminished? You know, because it's split among three of them and then also is the very substance of divinity something that's external to the three persons that they all buy into or have ownership over and then that becomes this question, that becomes a problem in and of itself because then there's that fourth thing that is the actual divinity. And so um, the Eastern uh, Greek fathers, they looked at it in a different way in that the unity and their, their um, divine relationship together was um, the divinity came from the fact that they were in a relationship of love bonded together. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, I think when you look at Genesis, and when you look at Genesis 1, where God says, um, where God creates um, Adam and Eve and creates the first human beings and says male and female he created them in the image they're both created in the image of God both men and women are created in the image of God um, a community together of two distinct persons as different as man and woman who are very different and yet of the same species and yet united in such a way that we call um, those who are united in marriage man and woman united in marriage we call them one flesh and so that same mystery of the Trinity is there reflected, most perfectly reflected on earth 
in the analogy of human marriage between a man and a woman. And that's a really good argument for why human marriage um, would be between a man and a woman because it reflects the diversity of persons within the Godhead and the unity of love shared among them in relationship. I hope that helps a little bit. But it is. I know. Then you always have to go back to saying, it's a mystery, which is so frustrating. So I'm sorry, I'm going to do a lot of that today. What's that? I can't repeat what you just said. Well, yeah, please, Pat, go for it. You mentioned the early Greek fathers and how they focused on the Holy Spirit. And I'm wondering if there are any contemporary writers or even early 19th century writers who we could... Yeah. You know what? I'll what I'll do is I'll come up with a I'll come up with a couple. I'm not ready to tell you right now, but good thing I'll be teaching on the Holy Spirit next week. So even if you're not here in person, you can listen in, and I'll give a couple books. You'd like to listen? You'd like to find something really manageable to read and to to tackle that will help you with that. So okay. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on and to to say well, how did we get to this place where we understood the third person? Uh, of the Trinity to be the Holy Spirit. How did we get to um, this articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the first articulations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see them in Scripture. There are a couple of them. We're going to go through them. But when we see them in Scripture and when we see them in the earliest non-scriptural Christian documents, so first century, late first century, early second century, going on into the late second century, um, what we see is that they are primarily, this um, idea, this language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is primarily repeated in settings where there's a creedal document, where there's a verbal um, confession of faith. Um, One of the earliest verbal confessions of faith was to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we see it in scripture where Paul talks about if anyone says Jesus is Lord, essentially he's a believer. And just leave it, you know, don't worry about anything else. That's the beginning point of faith, to be able to say, Jesus is Lord. Because what that does is it says, this human being who, um, who was born, who died, also rose again. And he is God himself, God incarnate, and more than just a man, a man and divine as well. And so um, that first creedal articulation uh, developed later on. The earliest creed is the Apostles' Creed, which we said this morning in morning prayer at 9 o'clock. And um, in the Apostles' Creed, we talk about um, Jesus being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, by the Virgin Mary. And then also we say, I believe in the Holy Ghost. There is that. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Remember, anyone want, we can just tackle the difference between Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit um, right now. Have you ever wondered about that? Well, the, um, the German for spirit is Geist, which was translated most easily into English. You know, English has a lot of Germanic roots and ties. And so into ghost, Holy Ghost. But then that word ghost has gone on to take all sorts of meanings for us in English. And we start to think of Casper or something like that, a haunting spirit. And, um, I, and so that's where it's difficult. So if you find someone who's really, uh, I'd rather not, I'd ra- you know, I'm a little scared of the Holy Ghost. You can say the Holy Spirit and you're still talking about the same person. In the Nicene Creed, that's why I altered it, even though in our Nicene Creed, when we say it with right one, we say the Holy Ghost. In the Nicene Creed, which um, was articulated later, um, really finalized in the 5th century, 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we get more information when we say this creed. He is the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Remember how we said Jesus is Lord? Well, now we say the Holy Spirit is Lord as well. He is also God himself, the giver of life. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today, and we're going to talk about that a little bit next week when we look at creativity. Where is the Spirit's role? How is the Spirit so involved in generating life? And we see it at the very beginning of creation, and we see it all throughout Scripture, and we see it in our lives as Christians. How does the Holy Spirit generate that new life as Christians? He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that was an argument that... um, It was very difficult for a lot of people for many years. Um, That was the argument that split the church into East and West, into the Latin church and into the Greek Eastern Orthodox Church, was this idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds not just from the Father, but also from the Son. And um, may that be resolved. It certainly will be at the last day when Jesus returns. But that remains the lasting disagreement between unifying uh, the Roman Catholic (coughs) Catholic Church and the um, Orthodox Churches. Um, so we, we talk about this with the Father and the Son he is worshipped and glorified and that's why I put these creeds in there that this idea of um, who is the Holy Spirit first started to come about because people, those earliest Christians were worshipping God the Father and then somehow these predominantly Jewish people who had come to believe in Jesus from the very beginning were worshipping Jesus as God himself Remember Thomas, when he sees Jesus, the risen Jesus Christ, he, I, he falls to his feet, my Lord and my God. And that is the cry of a Christian about Jesus, my Lord and my God. And we also say that about um, the Holy Spirit, but it first developed because people were worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit early on. And the doctrine followed the practice of worship. And so that's kind of how I got into this because Trinity Sunday, if you notice in our liturgical calendar, always follows Pentecost. Um, It just made sense to me to talk about the Trinity first. And we'll look at Pentecost in two weeks and the the descent of the Holy Spirit. Um, But in worship, um, in worship we would see that triune name used in liturgical, creedal, or doxological formula. Um, So here's also the Athanasian Creed. And this one, if you've ever seen, I'm actually going to do this, I'm actually going to reference Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) I have a friend on Facebook, she's my second cousin, and she just got this, she has this mug that she's coveting. And so, of course, whatever you put on Facebook is what you most desire or think is most beautiful, right? Your perfect life that you put out there or the things you want or the things you agree with or whatever it is. Well, she has this mug that she took a picture of and posted or she found it online. And it's a mug that illustrates um, the, the rabbit, um, the deadly rabbit that they talk about near the holy hand grenade of Antioch. And yes, I'm saying this with all seriousness. But if you've never seen this video, you can Google it on YouTube. It's the whole, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I neglected to show it to you this morning, and you can thank me later for that. But basically, in the formula for trying to figure out, they're trying to kill this voracious, deadly rabbit that's killing everyone. Right there. You see the comedy. All right? And they open up this handbook that's going to tell them how they are supposed to use the holy hand grenade of Antioch. And the language about the holy hand grenade of Antioch is so 
mind-bogglingly specific. You feel like they repeat themselves all the time, but they're trying to get so specific. So they say, the number of the counting shall be to three, and three shall be the number of the counting. Thou shalt not count to two, thou shalt not <laughs> proceed on to four, but three shall be, and goes on for like five minutes. They just keep talking about three how it's going to be three. And it reminded me of, this is terrible, Lord have mercy, but it reminds me of the Athanasian Creed because of the way the language of the Athanasian Creed, I've only put an excerpt in here so you can follow along. We worship and hear that in our creedal formula. We're talking about worship first and foremost. Not talking about getting our minds to understanding, but just saying, I love and praise and worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for their work in my life and the life of the church. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance so that there'd be less substance of divinity for each person. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. And that's where you get a little bit of difference. And then um, they just keep, it just keeps going on, asserting three and one and one and three, so that in all things, the unity in the Trinity and the Trinity in the unity is to be worshipped. I've spared you from the full creed, but you can see. I don't see. understand how proceeding. I, I don't understand that use there. Right. Yeah. Um, there's. We'll look at another one, or we can look at another one. There's this idea of um, this fountain within God's own being, this sense of His um, outpouring of love, and we see that in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Himself the outpouring of the Father's love. Right. This giving, this offering of self. Um, and in in the in the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father, it's also it's an offering of the Father to go out and do His work, and also specifically always this work of salvation and of bringing us back into His presence when we've fallen in sin, um, because we've fallen in sin. And so that proceeding it also involves um, the Holy Spirit and the and the Word, Jesus Christ, both do the will of the Father. They execute the will of the Father um, and the will of, of God three in one. It's not, that it's not their will and they're executing it just like a police officer who doesn't believe in a law that he has to enforce. They're rather, they believe in it and they're the ones that are generating the activity that is going to accomplish it. Does that help? <laughs> yes, Scott, well, so, you want to? Um, thank you. Rescue me. Oh, no, no. I'm just... So when, when I think of proceeding, my first thought was there's it's it's not causation. It's not that the Father causes the the Son or the Spirit or whatever to exist, but it's kind of like it. And so so and, and putting that together with the stuff you were saying, it sounds kind of like it's there's a purpose um, that kind of comes out from the Father. The Father has this set of goals or whatever, and the Spirit and the Son are on board with those goals. So that's part of proceeding. And then it's kind of like causation. It, there's a, Metaphorically, maybe the Father causes, even though they're all eternal, causes the other to exist, but it's yeah. not quite causation. Uh, so is that an accurate picture, or is that, yeah. is that going too No, I think it, I think that's beautiful, because what that, that does is that underscores that unity of will. 
they're you know even as three separate persons and I know that probably doesn't happen in any marriage that's represented in the room where you both always want to do the same thing but God being perfect in his unity um, the three in one they always want the same thing and there's no argument about who's going to go do it they just know it's like this perfect dance of oh we have this idea yes we're going to go do it and in one, one of the persons of the Trinity, um, more fully accomplishing it than the others, just like the Son with the incarnation and the atonement, um, there isn't this sense that the other two are not present and active either. Um, th- but they are all three. They are present acting. Yeah. Do you think that, that what that says up there, in like in that fourth paragraph, yeah. none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. Does, does that imply that either... Any one of the three can answer prayer. Yes, absolutely. You can pray to any one of the three. Um, but I, here's what I would say, though, is I would say there's a danger in there's a danger in praying and getting yourself into a rut where you forget to pray to all three, and then you pray to one at the exclusion of the others, and because then you forget that all three are divine. Then you forget that all three are God Himself, the three in one. And so I know of some people who pray primarily to the Holy Spirit, but it's because they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. And I think, well, don't do that. <laughs> I mean, pray that the Lord would change your beliefs. Pray that you would be able to understand more. Um, but, but I think praying to one at the exclusion of the other. A lot of evangelicals will pray. And this is, I, I love being with some, I love Baptists. And I spend a lot of time with Baptists. But I love knowing there's always a formula. They, they don't have a liturgy, so they think. But when they pray extemporaneously, the first thing, Father God. The first thing out of their mouths is Father God, which is great. He is the best father there ever was. He is the definition of true and perfect and good fatherhood. And so when people say, oh, I don't like to use the word father for God because I had a really bad father, I think, well, start using it because this is the best father ever and he's going to change your understanding of what it means to be a father. He's going to readjust and recalibrate for you what fatherhood actually is. But Jesus Jesus says, I think, mm -hmm. I'm no no scholar on this, that no one comes to the Father but through me. Right, absolutely. And that doesn't say but through me and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so, I mean, is that, is that in conflict or is that... Here's what I would say about that. The danger is that we would pray, the, the biggest danger in praying to one over another, I would say more so than praying just to the Father or just to the Son, is that we would exclude Jesus from that. And we're told specifically to pray in the name of Jesus. And that's because he's our intercessor. That's because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And right now, in heaven... Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means that human flesh, yes, raised from the dead, human flesh is there in heaven in the presence of God Almighty. And so my human flesh needs to call out and cry out to my Lord and Savior Jesus, who's exalted to that point, who has the Father's ear. It's not that the Spirit doesn't have the Father's ear. It's the Spirit doesn't have flesh and hasn't been my Redeemer. And he does redeem and comfort and advocate for me. We'll talk about how Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another advocate and what that means in relationship to his own mediatorial role, right? But he is our one mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ our Lord, as we pray on Sundays. Um, So, yes, you're right. You're right that if we pray to one, only one, we're in danger, and especially if that's the Holy Spirit at the exclusion of Jesus and the Father. Um, So I'm going to amend it. Thank you, Frank. Um, let's keep going. Let's look at um, uh, in Scripture a lot of the um, times where we hear 
um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mentioned are times where there is some kind of creedal statement. 1 Corinthians 8 is actually, Paul here is intentionally echoing the Shema of um, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ironically, then he says, um, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, um, there is no God but one. Um, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see, for Paul, in his strict monotheistic Judaism, there was no problem in saying this for some mysterious reason, because he knew with all his heart and mind and soul that Jesus himself was also God. And so he could say something like that and write something like that in Holy Scripture. We hear it in his, I put Ephesians 1, 2, but there are so many more. At the beginning of all of Paul's letters, he places um, God the Father and Jesus on the same level. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the grace that we say at the end of morning prayer, almost every time we have morning prayer, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's three in one. And there are fewer mentions of the Holy Spirit in that Trinitarian formula. And I think it's because the Holy Spirit was so new in his descent from um, upon the believers at Pentecost that they couldn't wrap their minds around it just yet. They knew there was a new reality, and we're going to talk about that at, um, when we talk about Pentecost in two Sundays. But they didn't quite yet know what that meant for them and what that meant about God in his very being and in his personhood. So it took them a little longer to reflect theologically upon the um, reality that was already existing in worship. Does that make sense? There's one more. Um, here's another good grace. Here it's Peter and not Paul. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm going to go on to the bold part, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. How's that for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mentioned right there? Um, we also hear it in the context of baptism where Jesus tells um, his disciples to go and baptize all nations. This is at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 19. Um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's that threefold name um, used especially in um, baptism where creedal statements were said. You would say, I believe and I believe this and this and this. Great, here you go, let's get baptized. Also, in this famous baptismal passage of Paul's from Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Again, here's that unity of the Trinity. Even though Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't linked out, still we hear one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we'll talk in, a little bit in the future, too, about how that unity within um, the three persons of the Godhead is reflected also in the unity of the body of Christ, which, um, as a single person, I love that that, um, for so many years, you know, I'm 36, and I've been single for all of those years, uh, all of my adult life so far, and just that idea, where do I find fellowship? 
Um, and where do I find that deep joy and love and acceptance that most, hopefully, good marriages will offer to each other? And for me, that has some come so clearly through the body of Christ. I don't know what I would do if I weren't a Christian. It would be so hard to be single. But in my life, I've been blessed to have very deeply rooted Christian communities that I've been such a part of that I knew I was loved and accepted. And I've also had that ability in those um, relationships in community in the body of Christ to get to do something together. So it's not just about staring at each other eyeball to eyeball. It's about getting to serve together for a common purpose. And that's part of the community that we see reflected in the unity of the body of Christ. And that's what St. Paul is getting at there in Ephesians 4. I'm not going to talk about monotheism, but let's just say that in ancient Israel, monotheism was not as was not a theological category for them. He, they were more interested, and the Lord was more interested in the people of Israel only worshiping Him alone. And he is interested in monolatry, and not idolatry. Right? Worship Yahweh alone, and not all these other gods. And so this theological category of monotheism wasn't really a biblical category. So that, that mental and philosophical hurdle that we encompass today was not something that those first Jewish Christians had to jump over. Um, there were some hurdles in faith in believing that Jesus was risen from the dead and was also God. But so many of them believed um, that there was something to that. Trinitarian moments in scripture. I have all of one minute left. Go ahead and read Genesis 1. Um, on your own. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you look back, you see the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Here we go. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Talk about life giver, the Lord and giver of life. There he was, um, waiting, waiting to accomplish their um, threefold purpose, uh, the three-in-one purpose. And then God said, let there be light. And in um, the Jewish scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, that speaking of God is such an act in and of itself. And his word is so important that his word goes out, like the word goes out from the mouth of the Father and is um, like a reflection in the mirror of his own self. And there is like this, and so the, jumping to this point where Jesus was understood to be the word and wisdom of God spoken out from his mouth to accomplish his purposes. There you see in Genesis, it's the word, it's that saying, let there be light, and then there was light. Kapow! God says it, and then it happens. There it is. So the word of God is accomplishing that creation, as is the spirit of God, as is God the Father. One last Trinitarian moment before I let you go. There's so many more, um, and you can, I'll post this online as well. In the baptism of Jesus, in any one of the Gospels, you'll see there are the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. Um, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. There is Jesus Christ, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. God, the Father, is speaking over him these words of good pleasure, um, not just for his sake, really so much as for the sake of all those who are hearing. Listen to him. This is my Son, 
pay attention. Watch what I'm going to do in him. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon him. This is a sign of the anointing of the Messiah in the Old Testament. We'll talk about this um, in two weeks. Actually, it's going to be three weeks till we talk about Pentecost, two weeks till we talk about anointing in the Old Testament and how that anointing is fulfilled in the anointing upon Jesus Christ. But there the Holy Spirit is dwelling upon Jesus in, the way, in a way that the Holy Spirit has never before dwelt upon a human being um, to accomplish God's purposes. So all that to say, I'm going to skip ahead. You see I have so much more. Um, but next week we'll look at the beauty of holiness, the Holy Spirit and creativity. Um, on the 27th, we'll look at that leadership in the Old Testament, anointing by the Holy Spirit, prophets, priests, and kings, and then we'll bring it forward to understand the anointing upon Jesus Christ. Then we'll look at the Holy Spirit descending at Pentecost, wind and fire, oh my. And then we'll look at um, John and Jesus' promise about the Holy Spirit, another advocate, the Spirit of Truth, that's October 11th, and then the promised Holy Spirit, guarantee of eternal life. And looking at our lives as Christians, what does it mean for us um, about, the God, about God being three persons, about the person of the Holy Spirit being upon us in a new and special way because of faith in Jesus Christ? So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for um, your holy word, um, for scripture, for the way that you jump off the page at us from it. And we thank you, Lord, for, um, for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to root and ground us in scripture and in your own saving love for us. We thank you, Lord, that your saving love, Lord Jesus, is not just yours, but it also is the Father's and the Holy Spirit's. And so we ask that you would send us forth in your blessing as we go forth this week to love and serve you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.